scar tissue is actually stronger than human skin. It's wounded flesh that's been healed, and it's actually stronger. And I love that because if you've got an open wound, let it heal. Because that wound will form scar tissue if you let it. And that scar tissue, you become stronger through this process. I'm Greg Runny. And I'm Rob Reeford. And this is Mind Body Matters. Welcome, everyone, to yet another episode of Mind Body Matters. Of Mind Body Matters, yes. Another week. Another new episode and uh, a great guest lined up. Absolutely. Uh, I read this guy's book, Scar Tissue. Uh, genuinely moved by his book. It was very, very well written, but I read a lot of uh, autobiographies. But uh, Danny Covey's book, Scar Tissue, mm-hmm. highly recommend for people to read. We're going to interview Danny today. He's doing a lot of promotion for his new book. He has survived eight heart surgeries. I told you this on the phone, right? Yeah. And I mean, it dates back to when he was just an infant. That's when it started. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is an amazing, an amazing story. I can hardly wait to have him on the show. What I'm going to ask him about is references that he made in the book about blue skies and then storms. And some of them are like thunderstorms, but his whole life was periods where he didn't have heart surgeries. I mean, he he died on the operating table a number of times. It's one hell of a story. Yes. So he had periods of blue skies where it was his surgeries were in the past and then storms came back up later in life. And he's going to tell us all about that. Here's our interview with author Danny Covey. How was your day so far? It's been good. It started with snow. I'm in Ottawa. So it, it was snowing for a little bit, but I'm I'm originally from Saskatchewan. My heart's there. Someday I'll I'll go back to visit. You're living now in Ottawa with your family or are you yeah. visiting? Oh, okay. Yeah, no, we moved here in uh well my, my parents moved here in eighty eight and then I've been here since. It's interesting that it's snowing up in Ottawa. I'm in Toronto and there's no snow, but I have a feeling it'll come. Oh, yeah. Because it's when up you there. least expect it, <laughs> when you least want it. Yeah, exactly. But this is the Canadian winter, eh? So, well, that's what you tell people. It's like, well, it's par for the course. This mm-hmm. is Canada, after all. And we enjoy complaining about the weather in the winter time, and we complain about the weather in the summertime. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> I really appreciate you uh, setting aside the time in your busy schedule to come on Mind Body Matters. I've been talking with my co-host Rob quite a bit about uh, about you and your book Scar mm-hmm. Tissue, and the one thing that and I mentioned to you when we talked on the phone, reading your book, I, I think you would have a really interesting perspective about the connection between the mind and body, right? Because you mm-hmm. you've struggled with open heart surgeries as well as cognitive problems and and mental health. How do you see these things are connected? Yes, all of the above. I do definitely see a connection in that what your mind tells you or what goes through your mind will come through the body. And so if if you believe certain things, your beliefs will tell you what you believe or your actions will tell you what you, what you believe. If if you're in your brain saying I can't do this, I can't do this, your body's not going to be helping you do that. Right. If your brain says I'm going to find a way, even physically if you can't, you're going to take any steps forward physically that you can to get closer to what your mind is telling you. 
So I, I kind of say it this way. Your body will tell you, your body reveals what your mind is thinking because that's what you actually do, the things you actually physically, the habits you have, the things that you do, that tells you what somebody actually thinks. In your past, have you used your mind, your your um, ability to focus on successes, uh, your ability to use your mind to ensure that there's success with your body? Have you have you done that before? All the time. I would think so. Yeah. All the time. And I think, like I've thought about this, I, I talked to somebody this week who's having heart surgery and their mentality is, I'm going into this, I'm going to lose all these things and I'll never be able to get back to where I was. And my thinking was, no, you're going to get back and be better because you'll actually feel better. I think sometimes it's just stubbornness. And so like, if I have a cardiologist telling me, hey, you'll never be able to do this. I, I don't know. There's something in me. I'm like, watch. There's a time when you were told you can't do martial arts. You can't get a black belt. But yeah. you did. Yeah. And, and it wasn't like, okay, I'm going to jump in and start competing. It was, I'm just going to go start stretching to get my body ready for right. when I can get back into it. So I think it's just this, like a tiny, tiny, tiny little step forward. Even if it's, you know what, I'm going to go for a three minute walk today because yesterday it was two and a half minutes. I'm just going to do 30 seconds more. Like that's, that's just that tiny little push towards your goal that I think you need. It sure seems, especially with, uh, with athletes, they're able to, um, to use their mind, envision, uh, success, envision, you know, winning the tournament. And I believe that that is proof that there's a connection between mind and body. People have done things with their body that is just unbelievable because they went through a series of um, envisioning that outcome. Uh Uh, So it it sure is, um, sure is interesting. This, uh, this connection as, as we go along with the podcast, Uh, each uh, guest has a different perspective on it, but I'm still amazed. And, and, you know, they've heard me say this time and time again, but I'm amazed how, we, for some reason, see these things as separate, that for your mind, for example, you would go to see a therapist. If there are specific things that are wrong with your brain or if uh, there's specific things that are wrong with your body, you go to a specialist. But there is no communication between all these healthcare professionals. And I think that's a very good example where we miss the boat on this. Uh, have you found the same? Anecdotally. I can tell you if I walk into my doctor's office, I'm walking out with a prescription for something. Mm-hmm. And then I've heard of cases and, you know, doctors in Japan, you come to them and you're having a physical problem or you're, you're experiencing depression or whatever it may be. They're going to ask you, how's your diet? How's your, how are your relationships in your life? It's far more inclusive of every aspect of your life, not just like you said, just segmented to one area. Right. Let's talk about storms. In your book, you talk a lot about storms. And Mm -hmm. I I think it's a great analogy. Your first storm happened when you're 18 months old? Yeah, I had uh, a small heart surgery at 11 months. And then my first storm, like the storm, the big surgery was 18 months. Open heart? Yes. My God. How did your parents cope with that at the time? They must have been terrified. That's the thing that looking back as an adult now, 
I I don't know how they did it um, because I think, you know, now that I have kids and, you know, I would 100% of the time rather be the patient than be the parent of the patient. How they got through it, I think there was an acknowledgement that they knew this was beyond their control. And the things that are beyond your control, you can either fight to keep control or you can just like let it all go. And I think they realize like we, we, there's nothing we can do, you know? And I, I think to their credit, they acknowledge that they, they acted as if there was a reason why this was happening and they would just trust the outcome, whatever that may be. And that's why, even though we had family members coming to us and saying, you know, uh, my parents' names were George and Kay. They said, "You, George, you need to start planning your son's funeral. Jeez. And my dad, you know, had said, we've mentally gone down that path, but we're going to believe he's going to get better. And talking with my mom, she had told me that while she was in hospital, she was knitting me like a little sweater or some kind of an outfit. And then she had gone to a nearby mall and bought me clothes because that that was her way of saying yes we acknowledge you know our son may die but we're going to we're going to act as if mind body act as if he's going to live they're envisioning the success of the surgery and that you're going to live much like an yes. athlete does yeah and they weren't in denial they weren't you know saying the the alternative wasn't going to happen and my parents had planned like if i had died here's what they would do they knew exactly what they would do Mm-hmm. Having done that as preparation, they're then saying, okay, we're going to move forward believing that this is going to happen. Having kids, I can't imagine what that would have been like. Do you remember anything from that first surgery? I mean, you you were, you know, barely two. You were, you know, 18 months when you actually had the open heart surgery. Any um, any remnants from that time? I grew, I, I think I mentioned this in my book. I grew up having scars. I had no idea how they got there. So I had this this faded scar on my chest i'd heard the stories Mm, or the stories mm -hmm. you would tell a little kid um but i think again coming back to that mind body connection i had this intense fear of doctors and specifically needles that was irrational and i didn't know why that literally if i was three years old and i saw a doctor a lab coat or somebody with the needle i would punch i would kick i would run i would get out and I, that was just normal growing up. I didn't understand why. Looking back, I think there was a lot of early childhood trauma associated with surgery that maybe you can't even talk yet. Maybe you, I, you can't even verbalize, but it's, it's encoded. It's there. And so I don't specifically remember, but I would say it this way. My body sure remembered. Absolutely. The body uh, keeps the score, as they say. Yes. Right? Yeah. Your book is about scar tissue, and you're mentioning that you became aware of the scar on your chest. Did you feel different from other kids? Did that come into play where you looked at other kids and they didn't have this big scar? Yes, 100%. I don't want to say that I was lumped into that special, but Mm -hmm. it was like there were certain things that I couldn't do because I'd had surgery. So I'd hear the story is, oh, Danny, you can't do this because you had surgery when you were little and you got to be careful with your heart. Yeah. And so it was a, maybe special is the wrong word. It was a special treatment, mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. know, 
didn't do gym class, couldn't do rigorous sports. I didn't really have an interest in sports because I couldn't, I couldn't like competitively do them. So I, I think, yes, there was growing up, there was a difference. I'd heard the stories, wow, you almost died and you lived and this is great. But again, what do you understand about that when you're five or six or you, you don't, you just know him slightly different from the kid next to me in some way. Your siblings, your your brother, as you mentioned in the book, um, struggled with that. Like you said, it's it's not being special, but special treatment. And he felt you got a lot of special treatment. So you must have had a lot of uh, conflict with your, your siblings growing up. I think there were challenges. I would describe them as the unwatered plants in the shadows. I was getting all the limelight. I was getting all the attention. The toys were coming my way because of everything I'd gone through. And they were... And my parents have admitted this. They were neglected, wrongfully so, and with good intentions trying to focus on me. But I think what really helped uh, specifically with my brothers is my surgery that I had when I was eight years old. It was my second open heart surgery. My parents flew him across the country and had him stay with me for a week in hospital and help take care of me. And all that limelight, attention, special treatment that I got, he kind of saw the the price of admission that what I had uh, to go through. Okay. Yeah. And I think that really that really helped change his opinion of, okay, it's great that you're getting this attention, but look at look at what you've had to go through in order to to get that. And I think that that really helped. And I think that was smart on their part. Mm-hmm. And it really it really helped kind of that sibling dynamic where, oh, Danny's getting this or people are taking him out here. You know, how nice for him. But uh, again, it's in hindsight, you look back and you see things differently. And you do see the cost, even to the family, of what one child going through trauma can have on everybody. Mm -hmm. That's why I wanted to ask that, because uh, growing up, uh, the chaos in in my family, I saw the impact on my parents, but didn't really, it didn't really sink in until I had kids. So I thought that Mm -hmm. was a question that you probably could uh, provide some background on for people that are listening that are family members. You said your second surgery was at eight, am I right? It would have been my second open heart surgery. It was my fourth heart-related surgery. Okay, so what was going on between your first open heart and the second one? So my first open heart surgery, they diagnosed my mitral valve with problems. They diagnosed my aortic valve with problems. They had corrected my mitral valve. And then every year since then, I call that my my Hasbro years because they were relatively normal for me. But I would see the cardiologist once a year. They they do a number of tests. Everything looked great. And then when I hit about seven, eight years old, I was starting to grow. And they said, we're going to do, it's a small exploratory surgery called a catheterization. We're just going to check, do a more detailed analysis of your heart just to see how it's going. And so this was a relatively small surgery, but it's a heart surgery nonetheless. And my parents knew when the doctor came into the room, they took one look at him and they said, uh, this is not good. They could tell by his posture. And what they had found is my aortic valve was narrow, mm. was not supplying blood properly. And if left unchecked, I would start going into congestive heart failure, which I did a few months later. My God, at that age. With 
that open heart surgery, what degree of storm would you, would you say that was? Was it a rainstorm, thunderstorm? How would you describe it? See, I would say for me at eight, this was the first surgery that I remembered. Mm-hmm. So this was the, this was the tsunami, the 10 out of I 10 bet. storm, because, yeah. you know, you'd heard stories. Now I'm actually, wow, this is the first one that I'm going to remember. Mm-hmm. And so everything is new. The, the experience of being in the hospital, going through the surgery. And it, that was a tough surgery. And again, it was normal for my childhood, but I just did not realize until looking back as an adult, what, how I internalized a lot of that stress. So I can, I can joke about it now. At eight years old, I was losing clumps of my hair and my parents were concerned. They took me to the doctor and they, you know, their best determination was, well, it's, it's from stress, from surgery. And I'm looking at them saying, well, what do I have to be stressed about? This is just normal for me, you know, being in hospital. But I think there's a lot of that first surgeries that I remember stress that I just internalized. And I'm like, well, this is, this is just part of growing up. And I didn't realize until now you reflect back as an adult and you're like, hold on, those, some of those childhood experiences aren't normal to, to everyone. Like that's, that's a unique thing. You mentioned in the book that your, the hair loss was a big impact for you at that age. Yeah. Like I'd lost clumps in my hair at that surgery as well. I'd um, had a mini stroke. So that was my first kind of introduction to cognitive challenges where I forgot my math, my, my learning how to do my times table. I forgot how to skate. There was just like several weeks of my life that just were gone. And I had a few things I had to relearn, but that was kind of uh, my first introduction to, okay, this is, this is heart surgery. And now this is imprinted in my brain. This is how I remember it now. And this mm-hmm. is, that was kind of my, my map going forward for how future ones would be. And I imagine at that age, you know, losing hair, then that, you know, then that probably brought it home how serious it is, is that, wow, even though they're talking about stress, I'm losing my hair, that there's a lot going on. Yeah. Now, you said that you weren't aware of the stress, but uh, like, were you aware of the difference because of your hair with other kids in school? Uh, the same way that I was asking about the scar, like if you were losing clumps of hair, then you probably would feel self-conscious at that age. Yeah, um, I, I lost clumps. Of, it wasn't like a an ongoing thing where I, I went bald. It was, I, I mean, it grew back after it surgery. Back. And yeah, yeah, okay. Came, came back. But I, I remember even things like when I would go swimming. As soon as I, I was in the pool area, I would find the lifeguard. And th- this, again, this was just a normal thing growing up. I'd introduce myself. Hey, I just had a heart surgery. I've got a nice prominent scar, fresh scar on my chest. And I had this, my parents would rehearse this with me. You said, you find the lifeguard. I've had life sur- a heart surgery. Just keep an eye on me when I'm in the pool, just in case something happens. And again, as a kid, that's just, you know, I'd go find them. I'd say this. I didn't really think, well, what does that mean? What every, t- every time you're going somewhere, having to tell a lifeguard that, or if I'm on a playground somewhere and there's an adult, hey, just do you mind just keeping an eye on me just in case something happens? And again, now I look at that very differently. Like, wow. <laughs> mm-hmm. I can't imagine, you know, telling my coaching, my kids, hey, if you're going out somewhere, find an adult and tell them this. Um, and, and again, I, I, I think I look at my parents and I look back and I think they weren't helicopter parents. 
they could have been, but I'm very grateful that they gave me a certain amount of autonomy to, to go out and do things independently while still being responsible. They didn't tether me to this condition and this diagnosis. You'll never be able to do anything you can't. They gave me a long leash, which I'm in retrospect, very, very thankful for. I'm sure you're very thankful for, uh, in Toronto, uh, maybe, you know, uh, people in the U.S. aren't aware of this, but the sick kids in, in Toronto, uh, you had the ability uh, to travel from Saskatchewan to Toronto to sick kids during these, these open heart surgeries. Mm-hmm. I mean, what a gift to have. Uh, the, this yeah. hospital has changed so many lives and so many families. Yeah. And even, even growing up in Saskatchewan, my parents had seen 10 different cardiologists and there were the 11th one said, something's wrong. I can hear it. Get them to sick kids. And sick kids is a world-class hospital for children. Oh yeah. And so I, like, I got the best care that I could possibly get given the condition that I have. And I'm extremely grateful for, you know, most of my seven, uh, seven out of eight of my surgeries being there. Good Lord. Wow. You also talk about blue skies. You talk about storms, but also um, blue skies, nothing but blue skies sounds like uh, a song. Uh, I think, is is that where you got (laughs) it from? I don't know. I'm sure there's a song about blue skies or a few of them. It's almost like word for word. So you're a lyricist as as well as a writer. Was there a period of blue skies, a period of uh, just regular growing up after the surgery? Or did you go into another surgery after you were eight? So I, my, um, my, my Hasbro years were a bit of a blue skies and that was from age one to eight. G.I. Joe's and all that kind of stuff, eh? G.I. Joe's, Transformers, (laughs) like that. I was, that was in my, I was in my element. Yeah. And then, like I said, when I was eight, I had that second major open heart surgery and the results of which, um, basically it repaired my heart, but then the valve started narrowing again. And then there was another surgery on the horizon. And that's where I talk about maybe wasn't blue skies, but there were some storm clouds, but they didn't look, they were off in the distance. Oh, I see. Okay. So I had a a ballooning surgery to help try and balloon my valve when I was 12. I had another catheterization at 13. And then my third open heart surgery when I was 14. So between 1985 and 1990, I had five surgeries in five years. My God. So that's a lot of storm. Yeah. And then at 13, I had a mechanical valve put in my heart. And then for the first time ever, now I can actually, I'm healed. I can actually do things. I can actually find my limits and test my limits. And that's where for me, those blue skies just, I mean, they were there. I think you said you started and now, to realize that you can breathe better after that operation. Is that right? I could breathe. Yeah. 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 I didn't, I didn't realize, oh, this was labored breathing. This, to me, that was just breathing. Wow. And, uh, it's, it's kind of that analogy, you know, you ask a fish, what's water? And they're like, I don't know. (laughs) So, but really 13 to up until I was 40, that was blue skies. I went from the kid who had surgery to becoming the young man and then adult. But yeah, I had a long stretch where I just, you know, life went on and was blue skies and no problems whatsoever with my heart. Life went on and you discovered a book, Keith Vitale's Karate for Beginners. Oh, I, I, um, I'd watch sometimes from a hospital bed. I'd see Jackie Chan, Sam Hong, mm-hmm. Jean-Claude, 
Bruce Lee, all these guys just spinning and jumping and leaping and kicking. And, and I looked at that and I thought, that's incredible. Like, this is, this is amazing. And I could never do gym class. I could never do anything, but I'd pass by this book at the mall and this guy in his karate pose and he's on the front and I'm begging my dad, like, please, please, please let me get this book. He's like, all right, fine. So we get the book and it's a step-by-step how to do karate, learn it yourself. And so as a young kid, you know, my shirt's off. I'm standing in front of the mirror in my bedroom and I'm like holding the book in one hand and practicing a punch in the other and practicing a kick. It was like homeschool karate. (laughs) But that was my, that was my introduction into just taking a little bit of control, a little bit of agency. I was going to ask that. I can't get a black belt, but I can buy a book and I can start learning some basic things. Did you find that? Go ahead. Uh, there's a great question coming. I can sense. (laughs) (laughs) Um, did, did you find something in watching the movies with Jackie Chan and Bruce Lee looking at what they're doing as that they had agency, that they had a sense of control over their body and a power? Uh, Like what appealed to you in martial arts, especially watching the movies? It was the, it was acrobatic. It was excellent. It was fluid. It was movement. It was, it looked effortless compared to the guy confined to a bed or, Right. You know, carrying an oxygen tank around. So I'm looking at that like these guys are from a different planet. Like right. they're yeah. on a whole new level. And that's why even just having a karate book where I'm, I saw them punch. And I would, I, I, I'm sure a lot of kids did this, but I had my VHS tape and I'd pause and I'd look, how is he swinging his foot here? How is he doing this? And I'd try to mimic that. Like it was, it was an escape into this other world that I didn't feel like I could ever do. But it's like, well, I'm just taking this tiny step towards it. That book, purchasing that book was step one of this journey to later on go on do incredible things. You mentioned that uh, through these surgeries, you had a, a mechanical valve. Like what, what is mm-hmm. that? And when was that introduced? So with each surgery that I had it, at one, at eight, and then at 12, my aortic valve would constrict. So just think of like a garden hose and it's pinching at the very end. And every time they would try and open it up, they'd put patches in. And it would, as as I grew, it would shrink back. Oh, I see. Okay. So the concern was when I hit puberty and my body starts to grow, mm-hmm. that valve is going to constrict even more. And rather than just try and open it up and put a patch, the doctor's removed the valve altogether and put in a mechanical valve. And so the decision was at the time, well, what size of valve do we put in? If we put in a child valve, we'll have to redo the surgery if he grows. So they decided, hey, at 14, we're going to put in an adult size valve and he will grow into it, which I did. But that valve meant now I'm getting proper blood supply to my body for the first time in ever. (laughs) And it's mechanical, it's plastic, it ticks. And the ticking is the blood pushing the the little door open and then it closes. And so there's this, just like that. And to a 13-year-old or to a 14-year-old, it was like I was the bionic man. Like I'm getting machine parts and I'm like a robot and I'm a cyborg. Like that's that that's the the part that went through my head. So even though I was, you know, 
I was anxious about the surgery. I was also excited about what it represented. Just like if you told somebody today, hey, you've got health problem X. We're going to put in mechanical parts that will make you so much better. You're like, that sounds great. I mean, there's some pain to go through, but that sounds great. And that's what that was for me. So age 14 was like this health renaissance for me where Mm -hmm. I'm like Mm -hmm. able to do and I'm discovering and I'm, and this valve is ticking and I'm like, I'm mechanical now. I'm like Darth Vader. Well, this was around 77. So it would be in around the time of Star Wars. Yeah. 77. And so it was just this whole world that opened up to me that I never had before. Hence the blue skies. We're going to talk more about agency because what I understand is that once you got into therapy later on, then you started looking uh-huh. at this word. And, and I'm, not, I'm not even quite sure of the definition. So I think, you know, reading the book, it helped me. And I'm a therapist. So yeah. I really didn't know what agency meant. But I imagine at that age, especially the auditory part, you know, if it's, if it's ticking, did that give you a sense of agency or a sense of control that you're alive? Because you're, you're actually listening to your heart beat, basically. Yeah, it, it's, it's interesting. There was some, some adjustment. I didn't know. I, I don't know if I didn't think to ask or I, or I was told and forgot. I didn't know that when they put that in, I would actually audibly hear it. Oh, really? It was only after? Yeah, when I woke up, I'm hearing the beeping of the heart monitor. Yeah. I'm hearing this machine. And then I'm hearing this ticking. And I'm like, what's that? And then I could tell, like, the ticking is, it's inside me. It was very strange. Even now, it's hard to explain. Like, it's its not a heartbeat. It's like this artificial thing that I feel just moving my chest. It's very strange. It's more of a physical thing than an auditory thing? It's physical and auditory. Like, if I get running, like, my whole chest will pound. Like, your chest pounds with a heartbeat. This is, I, I've struggled to put it into words. It's... It's not just a beat, it's a thud. It's like a tick. It's a it's a heavy heavier object or it's not flesh ticking, it's a plastic part ticking. And so I was terrified at first cuz I didn't know and then I was told and I remember, you know, the first few weeks after surgery I'm having this dream where I'm being chased by, you know, these goons through a warehouse and they're, you know, I'm hiding behind some pallets and they just stop and they listen. And they hear my ticking and they run over and find me. And they start shooting at me. Oh, so geez. I'm running. and But that ticking eventually, there were two things that came from that. It drastically enhanced my sense of time on a subconscious level. Oh, interesting. To where my, my wife and kids, you know, they're like, what time is it? And I'll guess. And I'm close to within a minute or two. Oh, really? Yeah. And then the other thing is... That surgery at 14, I almost died. I almost bled to death. And, you know, when I woke up, I I was unaware of anything. So I had internal bleeding. The doctors thought they were going to have to reopen me up and and go back in to stop the bleeding. So I came very close to dying. But that audible tick is almost, it's like a reminder of like, this is a gift. Mm, mm -hmm. It's a gift. And so even now, like a lot of times... I'll just tune it out. But if I'm in bed at night and I'm just laying there, it's just an, an, a reminder like, hey, every day you've had this valve and it's been 33 years now. This is a gift because you almost died back there. And there's this sense of 
do something with this. You know, this this unearned time or this extra time you've been given, do something with it. And and I will say too, I I'm, we may get into it a bit more, but that's that sense of doing something or associating a purpose. That's where some of the survivor's guilt of almost dying so many times, but I'm still here. What am I here for? Do something. Like that's where that survivor's guilt kind of crept in over the years. Well, you had experience of uh, kids in the hospital that you got to know and they passed away. So it, it, does it derive from that? Does it come from that? I think for sure. When I was eight, I had a, a kid that I befriended in the hospital and we got along. I used to like to draw. Drawing was my escape into my imagination. And so I went to his room and he's not there. And it's not just that he wasn't there. Everything was cleared out. The room was empty. And I'd found out that, you know, a couple of days before I had my surgery, he had had his, he bled, the bleeding would not stop and he passed away. Uh-huh. And that was um, probably not the best introduction to surgery, but yeah, that, that was, oh, this is really serious, you know, and that was, you know, feeling that, that loss, that closeness of death days before I'm supposed to have my own surgery. Like that's a, again, I look back and I thought, well, this is life. But now looking back, I'm, I, I see just, that's very unusual. That's very exceptional to be forced at such a young age to go through some of those things. The survivor's guilt, was that something you processed at the time later on? Yeah, that's something I would say from my third open heart surgery on into adulthood that has challenged me. And every, what I call every brush with death just reminds me, you're still here. And these other people that fought just as hard as you or overcame challenges, they're not. And why are you still here? Why you and not them? That's something that I I tried to wrestle with in my book. And that's something that I don't know I'll ever get an answer to, but you still have to contend with it, right? You're saying that was something you had to wrestle with in the book. Was the book therapeutic? Was the book kind of um, part of therapy? It was like a year and a half that you worked on it, right? 100%. I think everybody needs, if you've been through any kind of trauma, write about it. That doesn't mean you have to publish it, but I think you need to write. Because for years, I'd had like thoughts going around in my head and certain things would come back to me every once in a while. But just the act of writing, looking at it from an adult lens and reviewing these events over the course of many years, I had a very different perspective where as an eight-year-old, I'm saying, oh, this is normal. I'll just tunnel through to where as an adult saying, no, no, that was, that was me trying to process trauma and I didn't understand. But now I do. Or maybe I don't understand, but maybe I understand it a little bit better. It's been massive. Massive in that now that I've written about it, some of those thoughts that just would randomly ping in my head, they're gone because they've been Mm -hmm. dealt with. They're Mm not, I kind of look at it like they're unsolved problems. And so sometimes you dream about things and you're trying to work through things. Now those problems, at least in my mind, have been solved enough that they're not bothering me and they're gone. I'm I'm glad I'm glad they are. I'm glad you had that opportunity to to process that. And once again, you know, all these things happening to you yourself physically, but mm-hmm. I need to process things uh, mentally. 
Can you share in and how comfortable you are, but uh, the details about the, the surgery that you had, I think you were around 40, was a really yeah. serious touch and go situation. Can you share a bit about that? Yeah. Um, I'd always told people surgery was something I had as a kid and I was living my life like everyone else. I had, had itched to get back into martial arts in my mid thirties. And so I was doing martial arts. I was maybe a year away from earning my black belt. Oh, I but see. I okay. noticed through, I noticed throughout my training when I was around 40, particularly one summer, it got very difficult. I felt like a heaviness on my chest. Um, I would bruise very easily. And to make a long story short, um, because I'm on, because I have a mechanical valve, I'm on blood thinners. And the pharmacy had made a mistake on one of my doses of oh, blood God. thinner. So for about a month, I had been double dosing. And again, had I been injured, I would have bled to death on the spot. So there was a, a massive knee-jerk reaction when that happened to regulate my blood, let's check your heart again. So they did a number of tests, an ECG, an AKG. They did some um, MRIs on it. And what that accident, and I use that in air quotes, with the pharmacy revealed is that my aortic arch had enlarged. And had this not happened, I fully suspect I would have been training for a black belt. My, my aortic would have ruptured and I would have died on the spot. And so because this quote-unquote mistake happened, and the doctors ran these tests, it uncovered this problem that had been brewing for we don't know how long. And wow. so now as an adult, um, that thing that I had as a kid, now it's nope. Yeah, now it's reality. Here's a, sudden, here's a sudden tornado in your life. Here's a sudden storm you weren't counting on. Life is just bumping along. I, Greg, I look at it this way. The, I was actually grateful because this wasn't a new situation I knew physically what it would entail. I knew how long probably I'd be in hospital. I knew the steps to recovery. This was like familiar territory to me. And that surgery, I think beyond any other surgery in my life, is the one that has probably had the most profound impact because I had a peace going into it, not a naive, naivete that everything was going to be perfect, in the, in the weeks leading up to it, I was actually grateful that it was a familiar problem, but I also felt like I had some homework to do before the surgery. And that homework was get your will in order, talk to your financial advisor in case anything goes wrong. And then part of that too was if I'm not there for, if I'm not there for my kids one day, write a letter to them. And again, this was kind of what my parents had done years before they planned for the worst yeah. outcome, but they're yeah. going to step forward believing the best. So I, I did that, writing the letters to my kids who were young at the time, you know, just saying, you know, I'm sorry, I can't be here for whatever this future event is for you, but here's, here's what I hope for you. That was very hard. But at the same time, I'm like, I'm so glad that I did that because I feel like with my wife and children, it cut out a lot of the needless angst that teenagers have towards their parents because it forced us to face this together as a family. So that was kind of my preparation going in. And then when I had the surgery, my aorta had ruptured. Oh my so God. the surgery was supposed to be, I wouldn't say a schedule, but they were going to replace my 
aorta with a mechanical aorta, replaced the arch, replaced the valve. Right. When they opened me up, it had already burst. And I should not be talking to you. People that have aortic aneurysms, they don't live. And that's been challenging for a lot of reasons because, again, that, that's when waking up from that surgery, knowing what had happened, how touch and go it was, that for nine minutes I had no blood, no oxygen, heart not beating, no brain activity. To wake up from that and just be told this is what happened. My, my, my surgeon you know, told my wife and my family that we almost lost them. And that's when that struggle with survivor's guilt, like, oh man, I've dodged a bullet again, or I'm still here. Why? What am I supposed to be doing? It, it really, it's, I'm, it's not unlike what soldiers go through where, you know, why did, why am I coming back and not my buddy? And so that struggle with that challenge of why am I here? That's really come to the forefront in my life. And then now as an adult, you know, I've had several friends who've fought cancer. They've had other debilitating diseases. And I was, I felt this urge to rush in. Like you hear somebody's not well and you're not sure what to do. I just thought, man, I got to move towards this mess. Like they're, they're in crisis. I need to do something. I don't know what to do, but I just need to be there. And then there was one span in about two years, I lost about six people that I knew. And that's really like driving home this, this impending feeling of like, why are you still here? Why then? Why, why aren't they? Exactly. Yeah. And that's where I've real. that's why I use the term Russell because it was a fight. Like, I don't know. And I don't come to a, in my mind, a really good answer. There is no answer, but I still think you got to do the time and, and wrestle with it. My understanding is that shortly after this, that you went into therapy and talked about the survivor's guilt, uh, processed a lot of things. But also, I would imagine that you went into therapy because there was uh, a cognitive impact after this surgery yeah. because of the um, loss of oxygen to the brain. Uh, <laughs> what happened there and what was the result? Do you still have that today? So I, it was an issue I didn't notice at first. Um, I was on a lot of heavy medications, morphine, uh, several, several really heavy duty meds. So you're not really fully cognizant. It was when I came home and I'm starting to wean off of some of these medications. That's when I'm noticing I'm losing things or I'm repeating myself or being around people bothers me or loud noises bother me. And there was a period of time for several months, I thought I was going crazy because I didn't, I didn't understand why. And I'm, and I'm doing, you know, the thing you're not supposed to do, looking up symptoms and things like that and trying to find, well, what's, what's going on? Well, I eventually, um, through the, the Ottawa Heart Institute where I had my surgery, I talked to a neurologist and he scheduled me in for an appointment. And he was a bit skeptical, but once he did a, a scan of my brain and we did some questions, he, it's, it's clear as day, like there's been some cognitive damage and they attributed that to those nine minutes. And so it's things like just processing logical information. Like I get, if it's too many steps, I'm out, it's, it's gone. Or I get easily overwhelmed, like. 
I used to be able to do 10 things at once and multitask. Now, two, two is enough. I, I repeat myself a lot. I get lost even walking in my known neighborhood or I'll get lost driving to work. And so I found this really challenging and I thought, this is a whole other side to heart surgery I've never experienced before where what, what's going on? And it was having an impact on my wife and, and maybe less so with my kids because I used to love joking around being the center of attention. And now I was just happy just to sit back and watch. I didn't want to be the center of attention. I just wanted to kind of watch things happen. And there was a hard time where she was upset and she had just said, look, I just want my old husband back. Oh, man. And that cut deep because I realized like I'm not in the same spot mentally that I was just a few months ago or a few years ago. So one of the best decisions I ever made was to go seek counseling by a psychotherapist. And that helped me see, hey, you and your wife don't need to think alike. You just need to think together. Your experiences are so different. She's never been in, she's been in the hospital once where I'm like, that's my second home practically. We don't have to be on the same page life experience wise. We just have to say, look, you're here. I'm here. Let's just move forward together. And just being able to talk through some of these issues, understand that they were exceptional circumstances and just understand like, you know, I, I lose my keys and I get upset and I'm searching the house for two hours and it ruins my day to where now I just say, I lost my keys. I shrug it off. They'll show up eventually like they always do. I've got a backup pair and then I can go out the door or I can, you know, I'm driving and I'll get lost because I'm not paying attention. Or I get confused. And I can say, it's okay, I can drive. My my driving ability is still there. Maybe in my thinking, my logic isn't quite there like it used to be. But just trying to accept things rather than let it ruin my day. And so just going to therapy like that has been massive. It's just, they're not telling me what to think. They're helping me think through issues so that you just accept I think that's probably the biggest thing that's helped me is don't don't get upset about what you've lost. Just accept where you're at and move forward. That's been huge. So you found growth in realizing and understanding acceptance. But I was just thinking when you're when you're saying that you you had a, a great deal of that ability to accept years ago. But what yeah. was different in this acceptance that uh, that the therapist helped you with? I think. Again, getting back to mind and body, surgery was, for me, had been physical. I knew the steps to recover physically. This, this cognitive issue was new, well, at least new to me. And I didn't understand, for instance, why, like, I wouldn't say my personality was different, but I, I don't handle stress as well. And I didn't understand, well, why is that? Or I'd get confused or I'd be talking with my daughter and she'd be smiling at me and, and I'd say, why are you smiling? She's like, dad, you've asked me this three times already. And then I would say, well, what did you say last time? So it's just, these are new things that I didn't understand it. Now, I actually was really happy to get a diagnosis because then I can, then I, then I could say, hey, this is the problem and this is what I'm going to do to move forward. Where before, I just didn't understand what was going on. I didn't know if I was going crazy or if it was all in my head 
or what was going on. So I would say too, it hasn't gotten worse, but it hasn't really improved. I think what's changed is just maybe my attitude towards it rather than it ruins my day. I just call and say, Hey, I'll be late to work and I'll see you in a bit and just accept it. Like this is life. You shrug it off and you, you just try and move forward the best you can with how I handle it. So I think that's, that's really why this was different for me in this, in this respect. Are you uh, familiar with uh, the serenity prayer? I am. Um, I am. That came to mind when you're, when you're talking uh, about acceptance and the key thing is to have that wisdom to know the difference when you can and can accept. And that interestingly kind mm-hmm. of leads to a discussion about agency and uh, about control, understanding yep. uh, what you do have agency over. And I mean, I mean, the hardest thing in life for everyone is the realization and the wisdom to know that, okay, as your parents did, I, I don't have control over the situation. So what was your experience in talking about agency and how did she define the word? I think for me, it's just agency is just taking control of those aspects that you can or exercising your ability to make the choices that you can to lead as you can. I kind of joke, like maybe it's a bit of false control. I'm going to do this because there's a lot of things we don't have control over. But there's there's things, there's areas that I can take charge in and exert, I want to be in charge of this, or I, I want to do this. And I think that's that's been the area of challenge for me. I'll just share this because for years, this this was something that kind of rattled in my head. I had this dream when I, or dream when I was younger in hospital where I was riding a motorcycle through a brick maze and it's at night and it starts raining and I'm trying to control the, the motorcycle, but I can't. And it's speeding up faster and faster and faster. And I'm trying to turn it. I'm trying to control, but it's like, it's got a mind of its own. It's just turning and weaving. And I remember in my dream, I was screaming and I was crying. And then there was a long tunnel and it just drove right into the end and hit this brick wall. And I remember waking up crying and I actually like threw up and it was blood. It was, it was very, it was a very, very, very strong um, experience. And it's always stuck in my head. Like, what did that mean? And it was, you know, with my psychotherapist and She's just asking questions. But as an adult looking back, I think 100% that was me at a young age trying to process there's this situation that I just don't understand. I can't control. Right. And I'm trying to hold on for dear life and I, I can't. It's beyond my control. I'm trying to control where things go. And I really struggle. And so that that agency part for me really it really crystallized. I'd read two books, When the Body Says No and When the Body Keeps the Score. And they talk specifically about people that have been through trauma doing things that put you in vulnerable positions like yoga or martial arts, where your 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 tendency is to want to close in on yourself, but no, you open up, you expose yourself willingly to these things. And that there's something about that why martial arts always rang true because I had so little control. I'm looking at Jackie Chan do these things. I have so little control over what, what I do. And now as an adult, I'm the one doing the spin kicks. I'm the one flipping people. And it's that illusion of control, but it's, it's that agency. 
It's that taking personal agency and taking the steps, even though for years it looked impossible. And it was like, you'll never do this. And it was a battle with my cardiologist. It was a battle with my parents. But the term I'd always try to to use was to risk responsibly. Everything about life is risk. You go out in public, it's a risk. You walk under a ladder, everything's a risk. And so the idea is not to minimize risk in every instance. You have to willingly subject yourself to some, and that's how you live well. And so that my challenge was to my, to my cardiologists, you can't do that. You've got a bad heart. Well, what if I did it but didn't compete? And you're speaking about the black belt. You, you said to them, yeah. I, I want to move on because I think you had your green belt by the time you were in high school. I had a green belt, yeah. In and high then school. you were thinking about black belt, but then the major operation that you shared happened. How, how did you broach this? How, how did you approach this with your parents and your cardiologist? Like, what did you tell them? Oh, I was a bit of a salesman when I was a kid. I just <laughs> said, look, yeah, and my parents went and interviewed. They, they, when I was a kid, they interviewed my instructors and, you know, said, he will not do this. He will not do this. But it was just, I said, look, if I, if it's too much, I'll back off. And if there's competition, I won't do that. But let me go through the motions of everything else. Let me train as if, and then, you know, as an adult, it's the same thing. I'm literally showing my cardiologist YouTube clips of jiu-jitsu so he can see it because in his mind he's thinking it's cage fighting you know and it's bare knuckles i said no no, no, it's not that yeah so it was just just showing him like this is what i want to do and i'm going to be responsible i'm going to risk but it's not it's not a stupid risk it's not a an unnecessary risk it's it's a calculated risk but i want to inch forward to what i want to do the irony to me is the net effect now is when I have my checkups, they'll say, your heart's actually doing really well. All that stuff we told you not to do has helped train your heart to make it stronger. It became stronger. Yeah. So if I had never trained for the past 10 years or 20 years, what would my heart look like? It'd be So I think you willingly subject yourself to difficult things, and that actually makes you stronger. And again, you don't go past your limits. And I've found, I've bumped up against my limits. I'm like, okay, that's as far as I can go, and I'm not going to go past. Maybe I'll come up to the, you know, the edge and wave at it, but I'm not going to push because I know what it could do, but I'm going to push with safely in, in that zone that I'm able to. And I, I think that's true of everything. You, you push within your limits and that's eventually they expand, they'll grow. As in all good books, uh, and, I, and like I emailed you, this is one of the best memoirs I, I've ever read. Um, mm. And a lot of it had to do with the structure a lot of it had to do with this amazing story, resilience. But as in good books, at the beginning, they give you a little bit of um, a little bit of the key story. And at the very, mm-hmm. very beginning, you talked about being in the parking lot with your gym bag just before the tournament, and then later on, you go into detail. Can you share the details of what was going through your mind before going into the tournament to demonstrate? In my thirties, I started doing jujitsu, Japanese jujitsu, and I didn't want special treatment. I didn't want, oh, we're going to treat you different. So I never told my instructors for the first year or two that I had any heart issues. And when they found out, they were understandably upset. Yeah, yeah. But my, and, but my rationale was I don't want to be treated differently. But I'd always had it in my head 
that black belt is an impossible goal. It's something I was told I could never do. And so when I started, and I'm a white belt, I never saw the path to get there. I, it was just this dream, almost like a pipe dream. And as I got closer and closer, and it was always a battle, it was always a struggle. It was always breathing heavy, out of breath, challenged, but still showing up. So as I got closer to Black Belt, I thought, I don't know how I'm going to do this. I don't know if my body can take it. You know, I want to risk responsibly, but can I do it? So the months leading up to before the Black Belt, I had surgery. 20 months later, I earned that Black Belt, but it was always a goal. Like, it's that impossible goal. So I'm sitting there in the parking lot the few minutes before the Black Belt exam begins, and I'm just collecting my thoughts. I didn't want to rush in. So I sat there, I'm closing my eyes, the radio's on, and I thought, I've been preparing for this moment for years. Will I be able to do it? I've tried. I might fail, but I think I have to try. Even if they're pulling me out on a stretcher, you have to try. And just to clarify, I didn't think that was going to happen. I wouldn't risk that. <laughs> but but I, I thought, I this is the culmination of years of being told no. This is the culmination of training that I know if I'm smart, I can safely do. So it was, it was, it was big. And it was a challenge to myself because I honestly didn't know. I don't know if I can finish this exam, but I'm going to try. It's that one step forward. I'm going to try. And the beautiful thing was the exam was, I will not say easier, but it wasn't as horrific as I thought it would be. And I actually enjoyed it, which, which is crazy. You enjoyed it. It wasn't like a typical exam where you, (laughs) you know, you tense up, you enjoyed it. Yeah, it was, it was hard, no doubt. And I I had lived and breathed jujitsu. I knew that curriculum inside and outside, like I knew it really well. So to me, the, the, the challenge was, can my body take it? That was it. Mm -hmm. I knew it up here. I knew the moves. I just, can I take it? Yeah. Spoiler alert. I made it. So. (laughs) <laughs> read the book anyway guys <laughs> uh, there's one phrase in in the book that stood out when i read it and i went back to it just mm-hmm. before having this interview and it like just jumped out at me is you wrote i do believe strongly that there is a purpose to our suffering what we face is not accidental it does relate to my eastern philosophy uh, in Buddhism, they say life is suffering. And we go, geez, wow, that's a Debbie Downer. <laughs> but it isn't. And I have a feeling that's kind of part of what yeah. you meant there. But can you share what you meant when you wrote that? Yeah, I think I I will say it this way. I don't think we suffer by accident. I think suffering is a human universal. You will suffer. I will suffer. We both have. Anyone listening to this has had some degree of suffering in their life. And you know, to adhere to your Buddhist philosophy, there will be more. Mm-hmm. That's a, it's a given. And what I've tried to look at is, that's a given, so what do you do with that? And I, I've often thought, if I had acted in my marriage like there's no reason for suffering, if I had gone through these surgeries and said, this is all just happenstance, there's no reason for it, Maybe it's a mistake. Maybe it's what's supposed to be. I don't know. What would my life be like if I had parented 
as if all of this was, maybe it's supposed to happen, maybe it's not. There's no reason for it. I think my marriage, being a dad, going through surgery, my outlook on life would be very different. But I think, again, back to your mind-body connection, you act out what you actually believe in your mind. Mm -hmm. And for me, I do believe there's, there's reason why we suffer. I don't think we will always know why. And I don't think it's the first question we want to ask, but it's the question you'll never answer is, why me? Why did this happen to me? I'll never know. I'll never know. But I will know, and I can get answers to this question. There is a reason I'm going through this. What is this teaching me? And that's where I get a whole lot of answers. That's where when there's hardship that I face, I don't know why I had eight surgeries. Why couldn't it have been two? Why couldn't it have been zero? But hey, I could list out tangible things that every surgery has taught me that have helped make me a better dad, better husband, better friend. So I think that's the real value in any suffering we go through is that's where I kind of slow down. I pay attention. I'm like, all right, what do I need to learn here? It's like a new grade in school. There's tests. There's all kinds of stuff coming at you. They're not, teachers aren't just writing tests and throwing things at you just to be like, haha, see what happens to him now. They're trying to do something with that. And that's kind of how I look at this. It's, it's forced curriculum that you have to go through. That old adage, um, you know, in school, you get taught a lesson and then you get a test in life. You get the test first and then the lesson is afterwards. And I, I do believe that. And I think that's helped me accept some of, a lot of what I've been through is, is just knowing, look, it's not all without reason. I don't understand it, but here's three things that I can directly apply to my life to make it different. I, I haven't heard in our discussion here or in the book where you, you said, why me? I'm sure you did. But for people listening, very often why me leads to a perception of being a victim. And I think that's one of the first things you wrote in your book is that I'm not a victim. If someone's listening and they, they're in that space, something's happening in their lives and they're going, why me? How can they move away from seeing themselves as a, as a victim? What advice would you pass along? I think, it, first off, it's a fair question to ask. But I, I, I think, like I mentioned, if you're asking the why me, you will never get an answer. And I, I want to say it carefully, too. I say I'm not a victim but we've all been victimized by things, maybe people, situations. So I'm not saying we don't go through hard things, not at all. I'm just saying that victim or victor mentality, it's all an attitude. Mm -hmm. And so when somebody says, why me? It's, this is going to sound crazy, but it's like, look for things to be grateful for. Because you're looking at, I've been handed this bad deck of cards and you know, what can I be grateful for in this situation? Because suddenly you're not looking around saying, well, this isn't good enough. Now I'm looking around saying, well, what, what can I be thankful for? And for me, I don't know how old I'll live, but I've had, again, my valve reminds me, I've had 33 more years than what I could have had. My last surgery was six years ago. I've had six more years. My kids have grown up with their dad for six more years so far that they wouldn't have had otherwise. So, Ask the question, why me? But don't stay there because you're not a victim. And I will say this, my friend Tyler got married about two or three years ago and he wanted me to meet a friend of his that he'd grown up with. 
And he wanted us to meet because we'd both been through very similar things in our background. And this this kid, I say he's a kid, he's in his 30s now. He'd been through surgery after surgery. He'd had a tumor removed from behind his eye. He This guy had had it rough, really rough. And Tyler thought it'd be good if we met, we could talk, kind of swap war stories, so to speak. But I met him and it was a very difficult conversation because I'm here saying like, hey, I learned this. And he's angry, bitter. I didn't deserve this. This should have, this could have happened to someone else. Why did it have to happen to me? Why so many? And he's not wrong to say that. I'm not saying like, if you, if you've had hard things happen, it's not wrong to say, why me? I just think you cannot stay there. And so I'm talking to him and it was almost like a bizarro version of myself. We both had very similar backgrounds, but where we landed mentally was very different. And it's not like, you know, I'm better than him or, and it's nothing like that. I think it's been my protection in a way to say, never mind the why, the what. That's the key. That's oh, where wow. the growth is done in wow. the what. Yeah, yeah, the what. So it was it was a hard conversation, but it, to me, it just really drove home. You can't stay there. If you stay there, it's it, you. You're not going to grow. It's life is going to be hard. You're not. You're going to miss a lot of silver linings because all you see is the clouds and the rain. Your book, uh, as I said, and I, I'm I'm being genuine and and honest. Uh, one of the best memoirs, or I'm not sure if you refer to it as an autobiography, but one of the best memoirs I I've read, and a lot of it had to do with it was just very easy to follow the structure, follow your story. And it, it was just so amazing uh, what you went through and the resilience that you have. And I really appreciate coming on the show and, and talking about your your journey. And for the listeners, if you want to read the book, if you want to know more, then Scar Tissue, I would imagine, is available on Amazon. Maybe you can talk a bit about how they can get the book. Yeah, the book's available through my website, and it's available on Amazon.com.ca. My website is DannyCovey.com. Uh, there's a link there to order it through my publisher, or you can get it either at Amazon as well. But when I was writing, I wanted people, like I had this idea, I, I wanted it to be a, truly accessible to anyone. And so if you're a deeply religious person, if you're an atheist, if you're 75 or you're 16, I want something in it to resonate. I come at it from a certain point of view. You don't have to agree with that. And I don't mean to offend in any way. I'm just trying to offer steps in. This is, this is how I viewed things. And so what I've been deeply, deeply touched by is that I have had students that I've taught in college reach out to me. Mm. I have had people that I've trained with and they've told me your book has made me laugh. It's made me cry. It's really challenged me to question how I go through difficult situations, regardless of their background. And that just affirms to me why we need to share our stories. There's a, I think maybe I might've mentioned this, but there's a quote that I came across a few years ago. And when I read it, it just hit me. I was, I was emotional. I was like shaking. And I thought, I need to write. Whether I want to write or not, I have to share this story. And the quote is by Breen Brown, and it says, One day you will tell your story of how you've overcome what you're going through now, 
and it will become part of someone else's survival guide. Mm-hmm. Right there, that's my what. I need to write this because this is going to be a tool for someone else. And if something I say can resonate and it helps them in their healing process, to helps them to recover, then they're going to share their story with somebody. And it's a trickle effect. And people need to hear stories of other people going through hard things and coming through and healing. And I didn't really mention it, but scar tissue is not just physical scar tissue. I talk about it as a concept because scar tissue is actually stronger than human skin. It's got no blood vessels. It doesn't have hair follicles. It's wounded flesh that's been healed and it's actually stronger. It doesn't look nice, but it's stronger. And I love that because if you've got an open wound, let it heal because that wound will form scar tissue if you let it. And that scar tissue, you become stronger through this process. I've done martial arts and I've had people kick me in the chest and then they panic. They're like, what's going to happen? I'm like, I'm going to hit you back. As you said in your book, you, when that ha- first happens, someone uh, punching the chest and they, you could, you could see the reaction on their face. Oh yeah. And you said again. Yes. It's not, this is not breaking. My chest yeah. is, is going to stay, stay shut. And I think as a concept, as an attitude, it all ties in. Not having a victim mentality, having a victor mentality, mm-hmm. that's, that's emotional scar tissue. Looking for the what in something instead of the why, that's emotional scar tissue. Because you're assuming, I'm going to go through this hard thing and I'm going to come out stronger. Yes, I'm marred, but I'm going to be stronger through it. It's, it's very strange to have, to be writing in the privacy of your office and you're wrestling through things. And I'll be candid, like I'm crying as I'm typing and, and figuring things out. And now anybody on Amazon can run up and read your deepest thoughts. Yeah, yeah. That was that was the terrifying part. And I I I knew I didn't have anything worth saying if I wasn't willing to risk being vulnerable. Here enemies, here's 12 bullets from my chapters. You can use this against me however you see fit, but I to me you have to be vulnerable and share your your deepest challenges and, and thoughts. Otherwise, you're not adding to the, to the conversation. You're playing it safe. And people don't, people don't want things that are safe. They need things that are, are going to connect with them on an emotional level. So I'm thankful that that's happening. Um, people have asked me, are you going to write another book? I'd love to. I just don't know if I've got 20 pages worth of new trauma to go through to write a book. Yes. I hope I don't. <laughs> don't, don't purposely go through it, you know, to, no, to get material. No. <laughs> but I, but I, I do think um, I'm sure there'll, there'll be another book someday. When, what, I don't know. But I've, I've found writing therapeutic. I found the reward of having people reach out and say, thank you for what you've written. It just validates. This is why we go through hard things and share them. Because people need it. I have a great deal of gratitude that you, like I said at the beginning, set aside some time because I know you're, uh, I imagine you're quite busy. Uh, So the book is Scar Tissue. Thanks so much. Very grateful for you coming in today and uh, and sharing your story and and letting us know about the book. Yeah, Greg, I really appreciate being on your show. And uh, you've asked some very thought-provoking questions and challenging questions. 
And I think that's what makes this different is you're, you're going in deep, which I think, again, people need to hear. So thank you for, for going into dark places. Thank you for saying that. Take care now. And an absolutely amazing story. Mm-hmm. You know, we all go through uh, stuff mm-hmm. in yeah, our we life. Ask, Why me? Why um, is this happening to me? Well, and that's what I was just going to say. Why mm-hmm. me? How many times have we said that to ourselves through our journey? He says we experience stuff in life, as he, as he calls it, thunderstorms. Mm-hmm. And then you, you go through these... Uh, these periods of blue skies, but just he's gone through so much, but just his ability to look at life in a positive manner, as he said, there's a reason for everything. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm moved by his story. And uh, yes, I, I'm, I'm going to read his book. I mean, everyone should read his book. I mean, you know, there are a lot of books out there and, you know, like no offense to other authors that we interview on the show. And and by the way, there is a lot of books, uh, a lot of authors coming up about physical wellness in the next little while. We've always talked about mental wellness, but no offense to uh, mm-hmm. to other authors that we interview on the show is that he was able to actually touch on some things that anybody would be able to relate to about struggles in life. And uh, I mean... I was moved too, and related a lot to his story, though I've never, ever had a heart surgery. No, but you've had your other struggles, mm-hmm. uh, you know, addiction and, and yeah. so on. I mean, those are struggles in yeah. life, and you have overcome them. But, you know, it's still a day-to-day battle, isn't it? Oh, yeah, it? especially the, uh, the the depression. Yeah, I mean, but I can relate. There, there have been blue skies for me, and uh, back in 96 was uh, a hell of a thunderstorm. You know, you know what's really <laughs> sorry. To, sorry yeah. to laugh, but oh, it's, no, go it's ahead, laugh, laugh at my yeah. uh, at my expense. That's okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, uh, but uh, here's a good segue. Laughter is the best medicine. Yes, yes absolutely. And on Mind Body Matters, we we focus on topics uh, as I mentioned that are mental wellness and physical wellness. Next week, we're going to talk about laughter. We're going to talk about laughter is very therapeutic, but at times, especially recently, some stand-up comics uh, get laughs about things that we may not find funny. You know, so maybe it's you know not that therapeutic for some comics, but as a as a huge fan of stand-up comedy, I, I think we need to look at it from a perspective of this sounds offensive but it's tied within a joke and it's funny. You are bringing on a guest. I've never met this guy before. That's right. Glenn Foster, an old buddy of mine. And, uh, he's a, he's a Canadian comic and, uh, and, uh, he's currently still touring all over the place. It's a funny show, but as you had mentioned, what is offensive mm-hmm. now and what's funny? We're about to find out uh, next week on the show when uh, we interview uh, Glenn Foster. Now, do I understand that he, he reached out to you about coming on the show? Like, what was this conversation with Glenn that, that he wanted to come on the show and, and talk about? There was uh, back a little while ago, he was doing a show and then he got heckled on stage by someone out in the audience 
And that doesn't usually happen. Uh, someone didn't find, obviously, his show that funny. Again, <laughs> put it into perspective. Some people would say, oh, that is funny. It's, it, it's a great joke and all that. But some people found some of his material offensive and to the point that he was interrupted in a mm-hmm. show. And I'm sure we're going to talk about that uh, next week here on the program with uh, Canadian comic Glenn Foss. Looking forward to that. Yes. So that's going to do it uh, for this week on the show. But uh, we want to remind our listeners, Greg, uh, please download our episodes on Apple Podcasts, uh, Spotify, uh, iHeartRadio, or even Pandora. Uh, Give us a review. And if you like our show, give us five stars. That would Mm -hmm. be nice. And uh, by the way, you could also email us with comments and ideas about uh, upcoming topics on uh, on Mind Body Matters. So please do please so. do so. And uh, you mentioned Pandora. That's something new for us. Is that we're now yes. on Pandora in the U.S. That's that's a huge get that we're also on that platform. So very excited about that. Mind Body Matters is a great media podcast. We'll be back again next week with Glenn Foster. Meanwhile, be kind to yourself. And most importantly, folks, be well. Thanks for listening. And if there's a topic that you'd like to hear about, drop us a line at mb-matters.com. Be sure to like and follow us on all our socials. And if you like what you hear, hit subscribe or follow and share with your friends.